Okay. <clears throat> Today is... Ooh, golly. Seems like I'm... Every other day I'm doing this. Tearing another one off. Another month. The day is August the 3rd, 2010. And it is a hot one. We had a real mild summer up to about two days ago. Then the normal summer set in. We thank the Lord for air conditioning. We thank Him that He's given us time to continue to grow in grace. So let's prepare ourselves in a normal fashion. A few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You that You are in control of all things. That You have the power. You have the knowledge. You are absolutely sovereign and omnipotent. We're so glad that nothing in Your plan really depends upon us. We can contribute our positive volition and our faith. And that makes a big difference, but none of it is meritorious. We thank You for revealing the things that are yet to come so that we can anticipate and have a great, great hope and confidence for what yet lies ahead. And we pray that You will help us to concentrate on this part of Your Scripture, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to begin tonight with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We have not gotten into chapter 5 yet. And you can either turn in your Bibles or look up here. First and Second Thessalonians are very interesting books because they deal with a very interesting subject matter. A lot of that subject matter being the return of Jesus Christ. We've seen in the past already that Jesus Christ is coming back two more times. The first time He's just going to end His journey in the clouds of the air. We will meet Him and go back to heaven with Him. And then He's coming again, which is known as the second advent. And at the second advent, He is actually going to touch ground. And this is when He's going to begin His millennial reign. I know that Most of you have a basic or a fundamental knowledge of the outline of history and how things uh, take place. But there's very few people that can go into the book of Daniel and connect it with the book of Revelation, tie that into 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, throw in a little Ezekiel, a little Zephaniah, and connect all those dots to come up with a really accurate, detailed idea of what's going to take place in the future. It's very important for us during these, these Scriptures to go slowly and deliberately because there's a lot of false doctrine out there. There's a lot of people that think that uh, Jesus Christ is only going to come one more time and that in that one time... He's going to set up His millennial kingdom and we're going to be raptured all at the same time. 
Some say that he has already come back spiritually. Some believe that the millennium has already taken place. We're in it. (laughs) Well, there's all types of things out there circulating and people buy into them. And what we want to do is be accurate. So we're going to let the Word of God speak to us. Starting with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, we just completed uh, kind of an apologetic with regards to um, one of the doctrines that that I don't believe jives with the Scripture, which is the pre-wrath rapture that, that we're going to have to go through at least half of the rapture and that Jesus Christ is going to... Uh, come back sometime either at or a little after that point in time. And we went to Revelation uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, and we were looking at the 24 elders. I'm not going to go back into that tonight, but I'm just kind of letting you know where we were. I thought that if you understood more about the false doctrines and why you have to be so alert and be so detailed and specific with regards to the eschatology that we have in the Bible, uh, you, you would indeed be able to understand every, every word is important. And you've got to be able to farm this grid in your soul as to how these things are going to take place, when they're going to take place, so that you can not only anxiously anticipate them, but also be able to refute those who would confuse and have you discombobulated. So we start with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. The first, let's read the first three, three uh, scriptures, the first three verses. And you will note already, if you look up on the screen, that the verse 1 and 2 in your English Bible is two separate sentences, but in the Greek... Um, they're one. So here we go. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night, while they are saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. There's so much more to this than what meets the eye when you just read this. So we're going to start with the first verse. Paul is taking care of the issue of believers who had died and what would happen to them when he returns. Now, that's referring to the rapture. That's what he just finished in chapter 4. Verses 15 through 18 deal with the, what we call the rapture of the church. So what I'm saying is he took care of the issue of believers who have already died. And when Jesus Christ returns at the rapture, they're not going to be left behind. They're not going to be missing out on anything. And what will happen to them when he returns, now he addresses the issues of those who are left behind. Those two words ought to ring a bell with you. What am I talking about? Those who are left behind. Tim LaHaye uh, in, really informed probably hundreds of thousands, not millions of people with his books that were by that very, that term was left behind. And so 
starting with chapter 5, there is a break. There is a change in subject matter. That's important to note. Paul began verse 1 with a significant combination of two Greek words back to back. And the words are peride, P-E-R-I-D-E. In every other instance, when Paul placed this combination at the beginning of a statement, it was to induce, introduce a new subject. Also, the second word in this combination being de, D-E, even by itself has the essential significance of introducing a new subject. This was a quote from uh, Reynolds Showers, Maranatha, uh, he's a book. So, sometimes you have the word de, instead of saying now, it can also be translated but. And but is a word of contrast. So, the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to realize, look at your scripture. We just read uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, and if you look at verse 18 of the following chapter, therefore comfort one another with these words. That's referring to the rapture. He was giving them information, evidently information that he either taught and they didn't get or he didn't teach it, has to do with the rapture. Now, verse 1 of chapter 5 starts out with peridi, and in every instance, according to this quote, the combination means it's introducing a new subject. It could be but, or now, as long as you understand that there is something that's new being introduced here. He is through with the issue of the rapture. He's starting a new subject matter here. Paul did his, his job so well. That he did his job well so he didn't have to go to the times and epics because he had already taught them about the day of the Lord, but they lacked certain information about the rapture. The implication is that the rapture event is not part of the subject of the day of the Lord. Are you beginning to see what I'm, I'm making a point? The fact of the matter is that he had already taught them about the times and epics, and we'll go into those in just a moment. And so they didn't need to be taught on those things. But they did need some teaching on the rapture with regards to those who have already died. So the implication is that the two, the rapture is not part of the day of the Lord. He taught them about one thing. He didn't teach them about the other or else he didn't teach them enough to where they understood. So there's something new starting here. Now as to the times, the word Greek word for times is chronos. C-H-R-O-N-O-S. It's a noun, genitive, plural, masculine. This word perceives time quantitatively as a period measured by succession of objects and events and denotes the passing of moments. This is from Spiros Zodiades, the complete word study dictionary. So now, you've all heard of chronos before. Uh, there are watches that are called chronometers. Uh, the, this is uh, an, something that is measured in succession. If you're talking about something happens chronologically, it means it happens boom, 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 boom. It's in a chronological order, time-wise. It's not just throwing things 
all in different time frames. It's if it's in chronological order, it happens in this sequence. That's the idea of the word. This word refers to an extended period of time that includes more than one dispensation. One example of this is the phrase, the times of the Gentiles. This is a period of time when Gentiles have dominion over Jerusalem. It started with the fall of Jerusalem and the Babylonian captivity and will terminate at the second advent of Christ. I say that this, this, this phrase is not referring to a dispensation. In other words, it's very broad in scope. And as we see the term, the times of the Gentiles, and here we have it in, used in Luke chapter 21, verse 23 through 24. Woe to those who are a child and to those who nurse babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled down underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, you remember that when I taught Daniel that the Jews, the Israelites, went into captivity because they failed to obey God. They did not obey the sabbatical years. Every seventh year, they were to not plant and so and so forth and depend on God for his provision. Well, they got greedy, and they didn't do that. They didn't do that for 490 years. That means that they missed 70 sabbatical years. And so God said, okay, you're not going to obey me? You don't want to do that? You're going to take your sabbatical years one way or the other. And so this is when he allowed or actually... Uh, was instrumental in having Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians uh, take over Jerusalem. And they were hauled off into a Babylon for 70 years. And at the end of that time frame, Daniel, who was also taken, was wondering what's going to happen now. And the angel Gabriel came to him and he said, uh, you have 490 more years that is given to you. Do you see how everything is balanced? How long did they not have the sabbatical years? 490 years. And so after they served their 70 years of sabbatical years, which they said, uh, we're not going to do it. God said, yes, you are. Uh, they could have just, have you ever thought about it? They could have just been relaxing there at home, not working and planting and sowing like they would normally do that year. Just having a, 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 essentially a year vacation. And still, God promised that he was going to produce enough. He would pr produce enough for that year. They'd also have to have enough for the following year and so forth. They could have been on vacation for a year, but they were greedy. They didn't do it. So instead, there was great suffering on their part and taken into captivity into Babylon for 70 years. So the next 490 years is known as Daniel's 70th weeks. Daniel's 70th weeks. Heptad uh, is a, is a, means seven. It means it's seven seventies. You take that 70 years, multiply it times seven, you come up with 490 years. So Gabriel said, you're going to have 490 more years. This is all in Daniel chapter 9. And he, 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 he divides it somewhat and says, you're, there's going to be 483 years plus then seven years. 
And he said this time frame is going to start from the issuing of a decree from Artaxerxes Longimanus, which is in Nehemiah chapter 2. And whenever Longimanus made that, that decree to allow the, the Jews to come back, that's when that 490-year clock started ticking. And it ticked all the way until Jesus Christ came riding into Jerusalem on what is known as Palm Sunday to the day. And at that point in time, there were other prophecies in Daniel chapter 9. It said that the Messiah would be cut off, meaning that he would be killed. And indeed, he was. And 50 days after that, the church age began and the, and the clock stopped. It stopped. 483 years. That means there's seven years left to finish what, this, what Gabriel had given Daniel. And so that is the reason for that, of course, is because the, something happened that was mysterious to those in the Old Testament. They didn't know that God was going to turn temporarily from the Jews to the Gentiles. And now we have the age of grace, not the age of law, of the Mosaic law, a new age. And now we're under the age of grace. We call it the church age. And the church age is going to continue until God has finished his course with the church. And then he's going to continue the last seven years of Israel to conclude that 70th week. And that will be the end of that dispensation for the Jews. Are you all with me so far? This is all... Uh, to understand not only uh, about the times of the Gentiles, but also with what's coming, uh, what I'm going to teach in a moment. So from the time that the Jews went into captivity for the 70 years that they did not uh, obey, taking the sabbatical years, the Gentiles have been uh, dominant over Jerusalem and will continue to be until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent and they will be forcibly ejected and removed from planet earth and then he will set up his millennial kingdom so when you're looking at the word times that we have chronos it's referring to this vast number of years from the time that the israel went into captivity from the babylon until the time of the second advent you have in between there the church age has already lasted two thousand years there's also going to be the end of the Jewish dispensation, which is the last seven years, which we call the tribulation. And then you're going to have another dispensation called the millennium that's going to last a thousand years. But you're going to have two of those. You're going to have the church age and you're going to have the end of the Jewish age until the times of the Gentiles will be over. So in this word, chronos, is a large section of time with other things, other segments in it. Okay? Another example is the day of the Lord, which spans more than one dispensation. We're going to get to the day of the Lord. We're going to get to the day of the Lord in a big way in just a few moments. But it, again, is a large span of time in a broad sense that takes in more than one dispensation. Okay? Takes in at least the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation, and it also takes in the millennium. Large segment of time, as we'll see. 
Now the other word, we'll get up here again and look at the times. Now as to the times, we look at that chronos, and now we're, we're going to look at epoch, epochs, which is uh, kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. And it also is a noun, genitive plural masculine. And it refers to a specific period of time, an appointed time, set time, certain seasons, equivalent to a fixed and definite time or season. It is referring to uh, dispensations in a way. It refers to a specific time frame within itself, such as a dispensation. It's not referring to just dispensations. Uh, I've got a little typo here. I'm not going to say what it is. I'm just going to fix it. There you go. <laughs> um, so, you get a different idea. This is not a big, broad time frame that has a lot of other things chopped up in it in a chronological order. This is essentially one of those chronological things. It's just a specific time frame within itself. Now, God has a definite plan for the nations of the world. See, these time frames, when you think of dispensation, God has a, a, a plan for the nations. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, in the English Standard Version, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Now, this is one of the verses that is it, it, telling us at least two things. One, uh, God has a particular allotted period of time for certain people. Certain people fall in his overall plan. For instance, we are, fell into the church age. God de determines when we're going to be born. He determined that we were going to be born during the church age. It has a specific time frame to it. It has a beginning and it has an end. Also, this says that he's not only set a, a, a boundaries essentially with regards to time, but also with their dwelling place. In other words, he says certain peoples will be nations. This is nationalism here, which is a biblical principle. Internationalism in the Bible is always a no-no. God is not about internationalism. He's about dealing with particular nations. One reason that God hates internationalism because whenever you have great masses of people, in fact, if it could be the entire world, under the domination of just a few men or just one person, then, of course, Satan, that makes Satan's job much easier. As long as you have people grouped in nations and each nation is autonomous, each nation is essentially independent from the other nations, it's a lot harder to get, go to 150, 200 different nations to get them all on the same page Unless you have an organization like the United Nations and you have all these nations together under the auspices and under the authority of just a few, then it makes it much easier for him to dominate. By the way, I think this was pretty neat. History is his story. You got that? Capital H. His story. That's what it is. God created the heavens and the earth. He created us, everything on it, and He has a plan, and it's being played out, and it's His story. 
<clears throat> the next phrase. <clears throat> you have no need of anything to be written to you. It wasn't necessary for Paul to teach them about dispensations or the day of the Lord because he had already done so. The first things necessary in Operation Light is historical orientation and understanding of dispensations. Now, you might look at that. What is he talking about? Operation Light. Well, Operation Light is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm just calling it, as well as others, call it Operation Light. There's Operation Light, Operation Darkness. This is Operation Light, uh, and contrasting it with darkness. We're not anywhere close to that yet, but I just thought I'd throw that in. If you at least understand to some extent the various dispensations and periods of time, and as a result you understand the divine institutions, the difference between Israel and the church, and the responsibility of believers in this day, then you are moving right along and are able to orient and become a productive believer. You're productive as a believer. If you don't know the dispensations, if you don't know the times and the epics, if you don't know the difference between us and the church, if you can't make these distinctions, you can't understand the Bible. It is utter confusion. You have to know essentially whose mail you're reading. And why don't we bring goats in here and cut their throat? Because that certainly was a specific uh, imperative uh, that God made upon men, some men, at a certain time, but it's not us. We are specifically told that we're not under the Mosaic Law. We don't do those things because in God's overall spans, expanse of time in history, he, has, he wants things done in a certain way, and He interacts with man in a certain way also. And so when you understand these things and you start understanding the distinctions and differences between these dispensations, especially you should know the most about the dispensation that you live in. And for us, that's the church age. So he already had taught them those things. Verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, and then it's going to continue, but we're going to look at this for just a moment. Fully aware is the verb, it's the perfect active indicative. The perfect tense means that an action was completed in the past, and it's emphasizing the ongoing results. So, to be fully aware of something, isn't it interesting? It's not talking about something you do. It's talking about something you know. Fully aware. And when you have something that is in the perfect tense, and it's, and it's talking about knowledge, it's talking about being fully aware of something, it shows the importance of what you believe. What you believe and what you know is very important. Some people would act as if, well, it's not what you do. It's, uh, I mean, it's not what you believe. It's what you do. It's what you say. No, it, everything you do and say stems from what you believe. So this is the perfect tense, which means it's, it's very important. And he's telling them, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a future period of time in which God will be at work in world affairs more directly and dramatically than he has been since the earthly mystery of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, I'm quoting this from John F. Walford and Roy Zuck, Dallas Theological Seminary, the Bible Knowledge Commentary. 
He says that uh, it is a time referred to by many Old Testament prophets in Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, Joel 2, 28 through 32, Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 15. These are, all of these are referring to this period. As these and other Old Testament verses indicate, the day of the Lord will include both judgment and blessing. The day begins immediately after the rapture of the church and ends with the conclusion of the millennium. Now, that's what he's saying. I'm not saying that I'm buying in that it's going to happen immediately. It's not going to begin immediately after the rapture. I'm just quoting him because most of this is a, is a good quote, but I'm not saying that I am agreeing with the, it, that it, it, it begins immediately after the rapture, and you'll see why as we continue. Then we have a quote from Bibliotheca uh, Sacra, and this is um, volume 91, page 134 through 154. Uh, this is an article by Lewis Perry Schaefer. And he says, The great events predicted for the close of the present age include the day of Christ when the church will be taken to be forever with the Lord, some by resurrection and some by translation. First, Thess- uh, First Corinthians 15, 35 through 53. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that Notice the day of Christ. The day of Christ and the day of the Lord are not the same thing. The day of Christ refers to the rapture. The day of the Lord refers to a time when God is going to set things straight on earth. We will not be here. And so you have when the day of Christ occurs, and there's a a few references to that, Church age believers will be taken to be with the Lord, some by resurrection, you know what that under, that means, those who are already dead, and some by translation. Translation means those who are still alive. They're going to be instantly transformed into their resurrection body. Now, that was recurring to the day of Christ. Now, he says, he continues right here. He says, and the day of the Lord, when Israel will be regathered, judged, and privileged to experience the fulfillment of all her earthly covenants in the land, which has been given to her by the oath of Jehovah. So what we're looking at here were two. We, we first of all looked at uh, Walford describing the day of the Lord. And then we looked at Schaefer with re- de- describing the day of the Lord. And he Schaefer makes a distinction between the day of Christ, which is referring to the rapture, and the day of the Lord, that is referring to God's judgment on unbelieving world. Am I going too fast, y'all, with me? Any questions? The next phrase is, will come like a thief in the night. People will be caught off guard when the day of the Lord comes. They will not be expecting it just as people are caught off guard when a thief comes. That's why it says, it will come, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. One thing that is sure about a thief coming at night, you're not expecting him, are you? If you were expecting him, you'd probably be sitting uh, in a rocking chair or something with at least a double-barrel shotgun and being very quiet and just waiting for the perpetrator to come into your house to either uh, steal or harm. 
I mean, I, maybe you're not that type. Maybe you would have milk and cookies for him. I don't know, but uh, I certainly wouldn't. It. Okay, now we're we're going to have. You see that we're starting here the day of the Lord. Now we're going to get in some marvelous things here. The more that you understand, and the more you delve into it, as if you had a microscope, the more things you can find. And it's just wonderful, all the things that are connected to this particular phrase, the day of the Lord. Now, many people even have a clue what the day of the Lord is, but it is a major theme in the Bible. And we're going to understand it. So, number one, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them for His own purpose, for His purpose and His pleasure. The world was not made for you or me. God made it for Himself, and He can do with it whatever He desires. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11 is one of the substantiating verses of that. Now, so God owns and rules the heavenly and earthly realms. Acts 17, 24, 1 Timothy 1, 17, and Revelation 5, 13. It's His, and He can do whatever He wants to with it. Whatever He does, however, according to His own essence... His attributes is going to be absolutely perfect. It is going to, out of all the myriad of plans that God could have come up with, the plan that He chose to, to implement has to be the perfect one, the best one, the phenomenal one. There's one that's the plan that nobody could even ever dream of in a million years. He gave Adam dominion or stewardship over the earth, according to Genesis 1:26, 28, Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9. Now, when Adam sinned, Satan usurped the right to rule planet Earth, and the world system has been under his control ever since. Listen, we hadn't opened our Bible. Let's go to a couple of these verses just to look at, at these to show you that you understand what I'm saying here. God created the Earth, and He created Adam, He created Eve, and He, he, he blessed them, and He said... Uh, be fruitful and multiply. And it was all perfect. And he gave it to Adam. He says, you have dominion over everything. And what did Adam do? He blew it. And when he lost dominion through his sin, Satan usurped that dominion. And he has been the ruler of planet Earth ever since. And we'll look at a few verses. Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. This is when uh, Christ was being tempted by Satan. And we have verse 5. And he, that is Satan, led him, Christ, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Wow, is that not a bodacious statement there? But he's telling the truth. He says, it's my kingdom, my reign. He usurped it from Adam. Now go to John fourteen thirty. What else is in John chapter 14? Something real big. Y'all remember? Huh? Right, this is the promise. Right at first, 
six verses, Christ is going to return. He's coming back. But we're concentrating on verse 30. I will not speak much more with you for the ruler. And this is Christ speaking, by the way. I will not speak with you for uh, much more for the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing in me. What did Christ call him? The ruler of this world. Talking about the, the, the world system. Then go to 1 John 5.19. We've got to go way back to the back of the Bible now. 1 John 5. What else do you know in, that is in 1 John 5? Anybody? That's a great promise there. Yeah, where is that? 13. Very good, very good. Okay, but we're looking at 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. 1 John 5:19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so this is just these are just a few of the verses to show what what's happened. God created the earth and the heavens, they were created perfect. He he created man and the woman to uh, reign over his his kingdom, over his creation. And man blew it, Satan stepped in, and from that time until now, and it continues that we live in the devil's world. You've heard me say that before. And this is why. He's usurped control. He is, the, the, you, you know that the world system stinketh, doesn't it, to the high heavens. It is absolutely evil and corrupt, but that, and it has been since when? Since when Adam fell. And it's going to continue to be that way until the day of the Lord. Now, the second coming is included in the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord does not begin at the second advent. We'll get into that. But you see what, I, what, what, what I'm saying is all these millennials have, millenniums have taken place. Satan has been essentially enthroned on planet Earth and things have been so convoluted and wicked and evil all this time. But when we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what we're seeing is the Bible is telling us that God is going to intercede. He is going to become active in a way when the day of the Lord begins that he hasn't been from the dying of Christ. Now, we're talking about something really huge here. Something that is staggers the imagination. You get the idea of what the day of the Lord is about. By the time that the day of the Lord occurs, there's going to be nothing but unbelievers on planet Earth and rebellious, stiff-necked Israel. And the day of the Lord is going to catch them off guard. And I'll have to explain that in time. And it's going to be God is going to set things straight and He is going to regain control of the earth. Okay? Point two. Well, I don't have point two yet. I've got some more points than one here. <laughs> I probably said it all already. 
God has intervened periodically throughout history in order to achieve his divine purpose. However, God will drop the hammer on the unbelievers left after the rapture with unprecedented, concentrated judgment called the day of the Lord. And he will eject both Satan and unbelieving man off, the, off planet Earth to bring an end to their rule over the world system. And that's what you find in Revelation chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 19. You understand? When the day of the Lord begins, it's going to be nothing but unbelievers and stiff-necked Israel. And he is going to do what it takes in order to re not only regain control of planet Earth and what's going to happen to, to Satan by the second advent, by the time of the second advent, he's out. He's kicked off planet Earth along with all these unbelievers that have rejected Christ. Now, periodically, I'm not saying that God has never intervened from the time of Christ till now. But he's never intervened in this magnitude, this way, up to this extent. This, this, is, this is when God is going to start in his plan. In fact, this last seven years that we were talking about, these last seven years are, is, is his implementation to kick Satan out. As we'll see as we get to it, it talks about it being birth pangs. And it starts out, there's going to be suffering, but they're going to intensify and they're going to intensify all the way until the second advent. And then the messianic kingdom is going to be delivered. This will be the first phase of the day of the Lord. All this horrible talked about as destruction and, and unparalleled judgment. This is, can be called the first phase of the day of the Lord. The second phase will be a period of divine dominion over the world system where God's theocratic kingdom will be restored through the second Adam. Y'all know that uh, when God gave, when he extracted the Israelites from Egypt, what did he do? He gave them the law, didn't he? And who, was, who essentially was king over Israel then? God. God was their king. There was a theocratic kingdom. That means that God was ruling. There was no intermediary like a, a human king. And remember, they, they cried to Samuel, we want a king. And he said, no, you don't want a king. This is what's going to happen. But there was a theocratic kingdom. And there's going to be, it's going to be restored with the second Adam. And you find this in Zechariah 14, 1 through 9, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 and 47, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. It will demonstrate that God is sovereign over the universe. God, God has allowed all of this to occur. Not only has he allowed the Gentiles to trodden down Jerusalem until he comes back, and he's saying, it's okay, there's a time, I'm coming back. When I come, in, when I come back, second advent, there's going to be hell to pay. And from Adam all the way till now, Satan has been in charge of the devil's world. That's why it's so silly for people to say, well, that's not fair. Why would anybody think that Satan is going to be fair? It's his world. It's his world system. 
Point Now I'm at point two. The day of the Lord can be viewed in a broad sense or a narrow sense. But, by the way, the day of the Lord, I don't know if we have got to this point yet, but the day of the Lord is going to have unparalleled judgment and destruction and darkness. That's part of the day of the Lord. But it's also going to have unparalleled light and blessing. Because millennium is part of the day of the Lord. Point two. The day of the Lord can be viewed in a broad sense or a narrow sense. The broad sense has its beginning at the second seal of Revelation chapter 6, verse 3 through 4. I don't have to expand on that, I know. And it's ending at the end of the millennium. The narrow sense refers to the actual day of Christ returning to... That shouldn't, that, I, I think that, that should be the day of the Lord. The day of Christ is referring to the resurrection. Anyway, the narrow sense refers to the actual day of the... Uh, well, what I meant is it's the actual day when Christ returns to planet Earth. It's not the day of Christ. It's actually a day, but it's a day when Christ actually returns to the Earth at the second advent. Now, let me explain a little of this to you. First of all, the broad sense... Uh, I'll tell you a little more about when it's going to begin... Uh, the broad sense, it's going to start. I'm saying right now that it is the second seal. And you probably, you might not even know what I'm talking about, but I'll explain that. But it, and it's going to go all the way to the end of the millennium. But in a narrow sense, the, the Bible uses this term, the day of the Lord, meaning the actual day that Jesus Christ returns. That is also the narrow sense. So when you're talking about the the, the day of the Lord, it can be referring to whether it's the first seal, it's going to occur after the rapture, whether it's the first seal all the way to the millennium or maybe the second seal all the way to the millennium, that's a long time. But the other way that in a narrow sense, sometimes, you see, if you go to Joel 3, 9 through 16 or Zechariah 4, 1 through 5, it's talking about the armies of the earth coming and, and they're gathering uh, in, in the valley of Megiddo. It, it's talking about the... The actual coming of Jesus Christ, all these things, is describing what's going to happen at that point. And it's called the day of the Lord. So that's the narrow sense. In, in those verses, just a few times, it talks about it, the day of the Lord being the actual day, 24-hour period that Christ returns. In the broader sense, it's talking about it beginning at, right after the rapture. After, I'll explain that all the way to the end of the millennium. You all understand the broad and narrow sense. It has both aspects of darkness and judgment as well as light and blessing. The day of the Lord is going to have both in the broad sense. It's even going to have that same sense in the narrow sense. Because when Jesus Christ returns, it's going to be big time bad news for unbelievers and for Satan and his demons and so forth. Because this is when he is finally going to say, all right, I've given you all this time, now you're out. He's out, he's ejecting them. Satan goes into the bottomless pit. All the unbelievers are going to go into uh, torments. This is called the baptism of fire. But it's good news to the Jews. It's good news to whatever Christians are going to, not Christians, but believers that are going to be alive then. Because they're going to be, they're going to be saved. Oh, man. We've got about... Oh, is that a one or a seven? What time is it? 
Okay, well, we don't have time. I'll go into the second seal business. Uh, <laughs> this is so great. Let me tell you, if we had about three more hours, I could just keep going and you could concentrate that long. You'd be giddy by the time you left if you really understood what all it is and how wonderful the Bible is. This is absolutely phenomenal, miraculous book. But let's just go to Revelation chapter 6. Now, you all already know that the first three chapters of Revelation has to do with what? Church on earth. And then you have chapter 4 and chapter 5, and it gives you, uh, uh, now you're seeing the scene in heaven. And <clears throat> uh, chapter 5 is talking about Paul is really bummed out because nobody's worthy to open the seals. And uh, the reason why it looks like, well, nobody can open the seals and Satan's going to continue to reign. Somebody's got to open the seals so these judgments can start being pouring down to give them what for. And John is thinking, well, there's nobody qualified to do it. And he's crying. And it's, you know who's qualified? Jesus Christ. He's the one that breaks the seals. Now, let me just give you a few things in passing. You have, seven is a big number. I mean, it's not a big number. It's, it's an important number. And you have, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bold judgments. These are all, you know, three sets of seven there. And when you go to the first seven seals, the seventh seal is actually opening up and it, be, and it starts the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet actually is what opens up the seven bowl judgments. Just an interesting fact there. But now, um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Then I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, See, this is the Lamb. Who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ broke one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This is the four, first horse of the four horses of the apocalypse. Of Revelation. Now, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm a little fluid here. I, I, I can't say with all certainty that the day of the Lord starts with this first seal judgment. Because the, the unbelievable suffering hadn't started yet. It's the precursor to it. It's, um, let me explain what this is, who, who, who and what this is. This is John giving, getting filled in on what's going to take place then. He's talking about a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. Now, just so you'll know, the rider of this white horse is Antichrist. And he is a counterfeit. And he has a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, first of all, who else is coming on a white horse? Jesus Christ. And when you start to see this, it's, oh, it's magnificent. Here you have Jesus Christ. When he comes on the white horse, he's going to set everything in order, and there's going to be true peace on the earth, isn't there? Mm -hmm. But now you have the counterfeit. Before Christ comes, you have Antichrist coming. He's on a white horse, and he is going, as we see, as we will see in verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 5, 
He's going to promise peace and safety. Jesus Christ has promised peace and safety when he comes on a white horse. He's going to deliver, but Antichrist is not. But this is not the horrible plagues and suffering and the war and everything with the altar of horses. This is actually setting it up. This is what the actually the Antichrist is coming on the world scene and he's being revealed here. You see? It's, he's politically conquering. He's got a bow, but there's no arrows. This is not literal war. Now, here's what I think will happen. Man, I can't believe I've got five minutes left. And I'm just doing this. But anyway, the rapture is going to occur before this. And that we could, one of the things that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says is that before the day of the Lord can come, Antichrist has to be revealed. And what I'm telling you is, this is where he's being revealed. He's coming on the scene. What has just happened, look at this. The rapture has taken place and the world is in complete chaos. It needs a leader. And up stands Antichrist. And he is going to take all of the confusion and the panic and the dilemma of the world, and he is going to go forth conquering and conquering politically. If you go into uh, Daniel, he's the little horn that plucks out three other horns. He's, he's manipulating. He's conniving. He's doing his thing. He is being revealed. He is going to make a contract with the covenant of, with Israel. By the way, God has already made a covenant with Israel. That's going, to be, that's going to take place when Christ comes on the white horse. So is Antichrist. But Antichrist is going to break his covenant. So what I'm saying, this is why I have a little bit of, little bit of uh, vacillation here, if you will, is that this is the period where he is being revealed. This is not war. This is the first horse. And a crown was given to him. He's the one that's going to have the solution that the world is going to buy into. He went out conquering, conquering. This is all a political thing. Now, this is... The reason I say that I don't think that the, really the, the day of the Lord starts until the second, the second seal is because, first of all, Antichrist has to be revealed. I think this is where he's being revealed right here. And it really doesn't hit the fan until you get into the second seal. That's when the judgment is going to start. Now, it's going to be exceedingly bad, but it's still just the beginning of birth pains, according to Matthew chapter 14, uh, 24, verse 8. This is the beginning of birth pains. And the birth pains are going to go from the time that the second horse rider on the red horse starts to ride all the way till when Christ returns. The midpoint, you're going to have the early birth pangs that are going to get more severe, but they start out milder. And then by the time you get in the middle part, that last three and a half years is going to be where it's going to, the Bible describes it as worse time than there ever has been or ever will be. Let's look at the second seal now. When he broke the second seal. This is, this is Jesus Christ. He's breaking the seal on this scroll. The scroll is essentially the title deed to planet Earth. When he breaks this seal, then 
he is loosening this this tribulation and suffering and judgment upon the earth because there's none but unbelievers there, and he's going to get it back. He's going to do it in succession. So the second seal, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another, a red horse, went out to him who sat on it. It was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So now, this is the red horse. You have four of them. Now, this is when the calamity that is mentioned in Matthew 24, the beginning of birth things, right after talking about there. In Matthew 24, it talks about there were going to... The first thing it talks about is there be many who come in my name, deceivers and so forth. That would be tantamount to the first horse, the the Antichrist revealing himself, being revealed. The second horse would be tantamount to the next thing that you see in Matthew 24 is talking about uh, war. Now, this is out and out war. This is war. I mean, we've had wars, but this is going to be uh, wars. By the time, let me me just say this, by the time the first four seals are opened, one-fourth of the population of planet Earth are dead. That's how bad it's going to be. And that's just the beginning of birth pains. So, what I'm telling you here, and and I've got to bring this to an end, it's 8 o'clock, but uh, the day of the Lord is going to begin after Antichrist is revealed, which I think that's what the first horse is describing, going along with Matthew chapter 24, uh, around verse, I don't know, 3, 4, 5, somewhere in there, uh, about those who are coming and they are... uh, claiming to be the false Christ will come. But when, when the actual judgment starts pouring down, it's going to be at that second seal. And it's going to last from then all the way to the end of the millennium in the broad sense. In the narrow sense, a few scriptures talk about the day of the Lord, the actual day that, that the Lord is going to appear. Um, let me see something here. Well, let me just give you this. This, uh, I, uh, this is so good. It goes so well with what I just taught. I'm going to end on this. But here's, I'm talking about the, the big, big picture of the day of the Lord and the narrow one. The word day in Genesis has both a broad sense, a 24-hour day, and a narrow sense, just part of a 24-hour day. It says the evening and the morning were the first day. That's 24 hours. But it also says, and God called the light day. And that's only part of a 24-hour period. You understand? So this is, it's not strange, it's not odd to say that the day of the Lord has a broad sense, like the uh, evening and the morning were the first day. And it also talks about uh, the, he called the light day. So that's a more narrow sense, you see? And what, this is also interesting. When you go to Genesis, the first thing that you find is, it talks about the evening dark first, and then the light. Same thing with the day of the Lord. The first part is going to be the tribulational period, which is described as darkness and judgment. And then later on comes the light. Just, you know, I'm just making a comparison there. Well, that's just that for now. <laughs> I wish I could just, I know what's ahead. <laughs> Michael, did you, did you have your hand up?
Yeah. Well, that's what we're, he's talking about. What we're, <laughs> we're getting to that. But um, what amounts to, as in this scenario I was telling you, that when the world is in chaos and, and um, what, what Antichrist is going to do, I have the solution. In fact, there's going to be peace and safety. They're going to buy into that. And when they least expect it, when they think everything has calmed down, the, the Antichrist has things under control. He's even got peace in the Mideast. He's got a peace seven-year contract with Israel. Everything is lovely. Nobody's expecting anything to happen. Wham! That's when the day of the Lord's going to begin. Well, let's close. Father, we're so thankful for this wonderful, wonderful book that you've given us. There's nothing like it. That we can look at the future in detail because of your great revelation to us. We pray that you will help us to broaden our spiritual understanding so that we can put all the pieces together, connect the dots, because it is so exciting. And we can't wait until you do set this world back on its right side again. And it will take Jesus Christ to do it. But in the meantime, help us to absorb these things so that we can understand them properly and help those who may be confused or give others the great plan of God so that they can be part of it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.